Welcome to the Wildlife Explorer, a podcast by Essex Wildlife Trust where we aim to inspire you with our work to protect the wildlife and wild places of Essex and what you can do to help wildlife wherever you live. My name is Francesca Chantry, I am your new host of the podcast and on today's show we have a very special guest. He is a wildlife presenter, adventurer and naturalist. In fact, there's not much he hasn't done throughout his career, whether it's great white shark free dives, authoring books, creating TV shows, or mountaineering in never-before-explored ranges. It is Steve Backshaw. I'm really, really good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's a real pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you. So I guess my first question to you has to be, what's next? Have you got any new projects coming up that we can look forward to? Oh, crumbs, where do I start? The the film I've just finished making is a series for children of BBC, which has been taking kids as young as 12 out to the Bahamas, teaching them how to scuba dive and taking them diving with sharks. It's been a, a, a passion project of mine for years. Uh, we've finally done it. It was incredible, and I can't wait to share that with people. Um, and then later this year, I have both a book coming out and also I'm going uh, back on tour again with my Ocean Life Theatre Tour. Lots to look forward to then. I think my 12-year-old self would be absolutely crying out for that experience, diving with the sharks. I can't wait to see it. What is your book about? Well, the, the book is about the oceans. So quite a nice kind of companion piece uh, to the theatre tour. Uh, because both of them, what I've done is try to investigate the oceans, the many environments that, that make up our seas and our oceans, be that seagrass meadows, mangrove swamps, um, kelp forests, deep sea, the abyss, the open ocean, but exploring it through the animals that we are, I guess, most universally excited by. So that tends to be things like, um, you know, various different species of sharks or whales and dolphins and seals and um, the, the, the flamboyant cuttlefish, the wonderpus, the Humboldt squid, um, you know, a massive array of different wild animals that I know that people, people tend to get excited by. So finding out their story and the challenges they face are a, a a big part of both the book and the tour. One thing I love about your shows is that, I mean, first of all, they're just so much fun, aren't they? And also you include those species that I think we have a bit of an innate fascination of. And I guess that enables you to capture a whole other audience that you might not get otherwise watching a more typical nature show like Country Fire or Spring Watch, as much as I love them. But I think perhaps your shows capture a whole other different audience and brings them into the wildlife conversation, which is always a really great thing to be able to do. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I know that when I was a kid, um, being into wildlife was considered to be quite a geeky and nerdy thing to do. And because of that, I 
pretty much hid my fascination with wildlife right through until my kind of late teens. And I know that there are a lot of young people who are exactly the same. And when it comes to wildlife programming for for, for grown-ups, you, you've mentioned things like, you know, the uh, Spring Watch, Autumn Watch, Winter Watch, Country File. They tend to encourage us to embrace our inner nerd and to be comfortable with being a geek. And that's great. You know, that works brilliant for someone like me. But it doesn't work with kids. Kids need to believe that what they're interested in can be cool, can be exciting, can be adventurous. And so with Deadly, that was what I wanted to tap into. And exactly what you said there, to speak to people who don't know that they're interested in wildlife because they are the most important people to to connect with and it's it's worked you know we're still making deadly we started in 2007 we're still doing it now and we've had the opportunity to speak to several generations now of young people who are just trying to figure out what they want to do with their life and what their passions are going to be and having that opportunity has been the great honour of my life. My sort of age group are the first adults now that have grown up watching your shows and been so inspired by watching you. And I know I'm not alone in saying watching Deadly 60 has really, you know, triggered that fascination for animals and stuff. So thank you very much for bringing that to everyone. And actually, I'm coming to see your show in October, one of your ocean shows. I'm very excited can you tell me a bit about what to expect? I've heard great things from your previous of live course. shows. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Which, which one are you going to come along to? I'm coming to the South End one, October 17th, I think it might be. Correct me if that's wrong, Fantastic. I'll check that. <laughs> is, that, is, that the, um, is that the pavilion at yes, South End? Yes, the pavilion that's one. An, that's an absolutely amazing venue. That's a venue that looks out over the sea, right? Yeah, I remember being out the back and looking out to sea and thinking, the animals I'm talking about could be here in front of me right now. And it, it, there's that fabulous thought of that you could be in a theatre in, you know, what, what could appear to be quite a dark and lifeless place, but be encouraging people to walk outside those those doors and go out and investigate and find the very things that you've been talking about. And I, I love that. I love that connection. I love doing shows in places where you have got nature on your doorstep when when you're talking and you know one of the big challenges of a, a theatre show is how do you bring the ocean to life inside and I've got lots of different ways I'm trying to do that I've got a massive screen that's showing footage from all the things we've filmed back over the years uh, through some of the most iconic and exciting animals um, but also using um, life-sized ocean giants a lot of people if you've been whale watching you've probably seen a spout you may have seen a tail you've probably seen a dorsal fin but have you seen the real true size and scale of a whale probably not and and you know when we bring these these huge models out onto the stage you can hear people gasp and go there is just no way it can be that big that is not possible but they are and and i think having that scale being able to see a person alongside one it is is really really good for that but the thing that i'm working on more than ever for this tour is is the soundscape so I, we've known for a long time about the um the rich um audio world of whales and dolphins but we're only just starting to understand how how almost everything underwater communicates using sound. Sound is a, a medium that's impossibly rich underwater and that the 30 odd thousand different kinds of fish all have sounds that they can make, whether it be through resonating their swim bladders or clicking their jaws or crunching through their food or even 
popping air and gases out of their backside. <laughs> they have ways ways of communicating which we are only just starting to break into now, and I, I find that fascinating. But also, it means that there is an audio soundscape that I think can can bring the the viewer with me and try and immerse them, if that's not too corny a word, in in that ocean environment. That is incredible because you wouldn't necessarily think about the sound side of it, but it must really feel like you're in that kind of environment. Now, you're quite known for your experiments, demonstrations. Can we expect any of that in this show? Absolutely. So I, I think that... Um, First and foremost, it, it, when, once you get into doing a, a, a kind of science experiment on stage, um, and I, you know, I'm not talking about test tubes and Bunsen burners here. We're talking about stage science. But the second you get into doing that kind of thing, there is a sense of the unknown. There is a sense that it's going to be different every single time you do it, that the timing is something you can't necessarily plan to the second. And, and that keeps you on your toes. And when the audience can see that you're on your toes, that you're making it up as they go along, and when the audience see that you could get soaked from head to toe or slapped in the face by one of your own experiments, there, there's there's a, a, a free song of excitement of kind of thinking, oh, oh, go on, go on, please, explode in this face, go on, cover <laughs> it, go on, go on, go on. And, and I, I think that people respond really well to that. So, so yeah, I, I, I mean, it's for me... In quite a few of my my kids' programs over the last kind of decade or so, um, I have challenged myself to find ways that you can illustrate the the behaviour, but more importantly, the the physiology of certain animals and how how they work, how they function. And I've kind of pilfered some of the things that I've done in my shows, and and I'm now doing them on stage. Oh, that is absolutely brilliant! I'm really looking forward to it, and. Talking about oceans, in Essex, we have a 350-mile-long coastline. What would you sort of say to people that don't realise the incredible marine habitats they share their county with? I, I would say that um, an interest in wildlife, it, it's, it's easy to get fascinated by the exotic and by the dramatic and by the glamorous things on the other side of the planet. But what's most important is that we connect first and foremost with the stuff that's on our doorstep and the, the stuff that is is ours, if for no other reason than it, that, that it is ours to protect. So get involved with the Essex Wildlife Trust, you know, see some of their extraordinary reserves Um get down to the coast where you can see absolutely amazing things and it's yours it's yours to enjoy and it's yours to cherish um so yeah get amongst it yeah we do have some amazing marine species and actually i watched your shark documentary i loved it anyone listening i really recommend and there's a fact that i really liked and you said that in the british waters we have the same number of different shark species as they have in the Bahamas, which I don't think a lot of people would expect. Yeah, and, and that's the ones that we get regularly. So there, there are kinds of shark that we, we don't see very often that are impossibly exotic. And, and 
why not? Atlantic Ocean is is continuous with the rest of the Atlantic Ocean, with everything that you've got in the Caribbean and and with in, in North America. We've had smooth hammerheads sweeping our British beaches. There was a a small two sand tiger shark last week. Um, we've had Greenland sharks washing up. The shark fauna here in this country is much more diverse than than most people realise. And uh, I think that that's one of the most exciting things. Mystery, the sense of mystery, the sense of the unknown is why I still fixate, obsess on uh, ocean environments and ocean animals even now. There's just something mesmerising about the ocean. Now, it goes without saying you're obviously a huge wildlife fanatic, but where did that enthusiasm and love for nature begin? Was there a particular magic wildlife moment that sort of sparked your interest well i, I think that so so my my folks my mum and dad are both massively into the outdoors and into i would i would say animals more more than wildlife so they particularly you know we grew up on a small holding surrounded by rescue animals um but beyond that was the surrey heaths and woodland and and so it was a completely natural part of my everyday life from very very young my mum and dad tell stories of me going through the compost and manure heat looking for looking for grass snakes look, looking for beetles and worms when i was when i was knee high and i always took that for granted and i'm starting to see the same thing in my kids as well you know my twins are three logan's four and they already they always want to be outside doesn't matter if it's hammering down hammering down with rain they want to be outside that's where they're happy and i, I hope that i can con continue their their enjoyment and their enthusiasm for the wild world because it's given me everything it's it's you know given me such a happy life and i i know that no matter how bleak things get i uh, you know, I I just need to get out on the river. I need to get out on my yeah. bike. Need to go out. Need to go out and go bird watching, and it it will give me an impossible sense of contentment and well being that I struggle to get elsewhere. So yeah, I I really hope that my kids get the same. I think when you're out in nature, everything else sort of slips away for a while. It's a bit magic. I think maybe from a parent's point of view, maybe it doesn't seem as significant as it really is those little moments but actually growing into adulthood it really inspires that appreciation for the natural world and it's so important to have those experiences but I think it's safe to say your wildlife encounters have only gone up from there which one would you most want to relive and why oh that's a great question um well I, I think any moment where a a wild animal on its terms wants to interact with you is is something to be treasured um and i i have quite a few of those M most often it tends to be with intelligent mammals so seals sea lions dolphins whales um i had a beautiful experience with uh, with an orca, female orca in the um, in the Arctic in uh, in November, where we were we were up filming both orca and humpbacks and finding it quite tr tricky. You know, we were we were struggling to get the shots we needed, and then this one female orca just 
hung motionless at the back of our boat and just started spy hopping, sticking her head out of the water and looking at us. And we kind of figured, she's really interested in us. Let's get in and see what happens. So we dropped into the water and she stuck with us for half an hour, just doing circles around and around and around us. And every time she came around, she'd spin over onto her side so that she could make eye contact. You'd tell she was sussing us out the same way that we were. And at one point, she just rolled over on her back with her pectorals in the air, in, not in the air, in, in, out in the water, as if she was kind of asking us to come over and give her tummy a good rub. We, we didn't, but I mean, she was she was so close that we had to swim away from her to prevent mm. getting too close. But it's just, just a, a, an amazing thing, an animal of that sort of size with that degree of intelligence that wants to interact with you. It's, it's always something magical. For anyone that might not know, by the way, when listening to this, the orca is another word for the killer whale. It must be so awe-inspiring to have a wild animal trust you in that way as well. One thing I wanted to ask you, actually, is you've had a lot of encounters with what many people might perceive as potentially dangerous species. How do you go about, I don't know if it's unlearning that fear or I guess a lot of learning about the species and their behaviour enough to get in the water with something like an orca for example. I think that's the key there's still so much that we have to learn about orca and we will we will find out many more dramatic things about them their behaviour their societies in years to come um what we tend to to think of at the moment are different what are known as ecotypes from orca and those ecotypes which may share the same territory um, can be as different as a shark is from a dolphin Uh, some of them will be obligate mammal feeders some will only feed on sharks and rays some will only feed on fish and the behaviour changes, the language differences between those tribes, if you will, of orca can be stratospheric. Now, I would, I don't think dive with some of the uh, what are known as transient orca in the Pacific Northwest, which, you know, are feeding almost entirely on, on seals and sea lions and dolphins and porpoises, because, you know, I think that you as a mammal in the water might look like their potential food but diving with the fish feeding orca you know it it is just a very big dolphin recently we've had wild owls hit our screens to celebrate the incredible wildlife the uk has to offer and i know that you obviously make a point to include british species in your shows as well why do you think it's so important that we you know, celebrate and connect with the nature that's right on our doorsteps? I think that, first of all, you know, we have got a, what is known as a denuded natural landscape here in the UK. We have a, you know, a paucity of wild space and we are, you know, relatively lacking in certain types of biodiversity. That said, our wildlife is also massively underrated. And knowing that we still have, you know, really cool, really exciting animals 
out there it is the thing that, that will drive us towards wanting to protect it. You know, why would you get involved in conserving and protecting wildlife if we didn't have any good stuff left? It, there, there, would, there would be no point. Knowing that there is, knowing that we still have ex extraordinary bird, fish, mammal life is the main thing that has to propel us towards protection. Definitely. And do you have a favourite UK species? It's always hard to pick one, I find. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, so I, I would say that, you know, obviously we have, we have orca in our seas, and that, I would say, is my favourite animal overall. So I, I'd have a tendency to, to go for that. But, um, you know, I, 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 there are so many animals in British seas. Blue sharks, I, I would say that some of my best shark dives have been with blue sharks off the coast of, of Wales or off Cornwall. Um, they're the most beautiful, visually beautiful of all shark species. And also they can be the most interactive as well. So... Yeah, I'm going blue sharks. Blue sharks. I couldn't believe in your shark documentary just how blue they were. <laughs> in pictures, it doesn't do it justice, but in the documentary, it's shockingly electric blue. I was really impressed with that one. That's a really tricky thing. It's really hard <laughs> not to be cliched when you're talking about things like blue sharks and blue whales because, yeah, that's exactly it. They're really blue. It's, it sounds like such a sort of you know, rubbish thing for a presenter to say. They're, they're just really, really blue, <laughs> but, but they are. Now, I thought at this point in the podcast, we could play a bit of a game. I thought I would live out a bit of a dream of mine and create my own episode of Deadly <laughs> 60 with yourself, Steve. So I thought we Bring could do on. our own version of Deadly 60, the Extinct Species Special so what would be your top two extinct species for the Deadly 60 list? There's some pretty Ooh. epic ones. Yeah, there really are. Are we talking recently extinct or, or can we go way back? You can go any time. We can go dinosaurs, megalodon, wherever you want. Okay, so let's go for um, a... Oh, I'll tell you what we'll go for. We'll go for a, a precursor to the sharks, Dunkleostus which was a, uh, an armour-plated uh, fish-slash-shark ancestor um, that doesn't, it appears, have any teeth, but didn't, in fact, instead have um, sharp, bony jaws, self-sharpening bony jaws. Um, there has been some recent science to suggest they're not quite as big as we might once have thought, but still an extraordinarily imposing creature uh, that was, I think, Ordovician, so sort of like 450, 460 million years ago. Absolutely epic. That, that would be my my first suggestion. Oh, wow. Deadly extinct animal. <laughs> I wonder if you would get in the water with that one. <laughs> of course I would. What would be your second? Um, okay, well, let, let's, stay on, let's stay on a similar line. Um, not quite so old, so a couple of hundred million years later on. Um, this is a, an animal that we only know from some, some beautiful, um, but but I, I guess kind of small fossil evidence, uh, which is the evidence of their tooth whirl. It's kind of a um, an array of teeth in this 
beautiful spiral shape which belongs to a proto shark called helicoprion um, and it, it kind of looks like they're trying to swallow a buzzsaw from extrapolating the the tooth whopper which is the only fossil evidence we have of this extraordinary animal uh, it's believed that some of them could get to be as big as six meters in length but having this phenomenal tooth apparatus in their jaws is is something that first of all you know a lot of paleo artists cry and replicate imagery of it and i don't think any of them have quite nailed it um in, unbelievably exciting and i would just love to know what they really look like oh my goodness i'm gonna have to look into that one that sounds really exciting you can do fossil hunting in essex and in the uk i think we found megalodon teeth at our essex nays center we're at chafford we've had mosasaur fossils you know there's a huge amount out there so i think it's a great way of people getting involved isn't it it is it definitely is and, and you know there are there are beaches where you can wander and find belemnites and pieces of ammonite and and that is that's that's a wonderful practical pragmatic thing that particularly young people can do which is it just can set you on on a path towards becoming a future paleontologist definitely and have you noticed in throughout your career how people feel about nature since you started and do you think that interest from the public has grown that's an interesting question it's a that's a really big question since um since covid and since lockdown times i think that people have started to reassess our relationship to nature and both what what we need to do for nature, but also more importantly, I think what nature can do for us. So I, I've talked quite a lot about how you know nature is my is my solace. It's the thing that I go to when I when I need a uh, you know a kick up the backside when I need a bit of positivity. And and a lot of pe- people are switching to nature because we understand that it can give us so many things that the modern world can't, and that it can be a, a a panacea for so many of our our ills that's something that you know if i'd said that 20 years ago people would have people would have said i was a a hipster freak and now people are starting to kind of take for granted we're starting to understand it the what should be total common sense that going out for a long walk in the countryside makes you feel good Mm. that going out and listening to birdsong is calming that you know, going for a cold water swim is is invigorating and will give you enthusiasm and energy for the whole of the rest of the day. It, it isn't extraordinary to think that twenty years ago, ten years ago, those those sentences would have been called into question by just about everyone. And now we're starting to take those things for granted, and that's good because you know the more that the more that people realise how we can benefit nature the more that gives us impetus to to make sure that nature is in a good place and i think that we we would not have had the uproar about sewage in our rivers 20 years ago because you know only a handful of people were using our rivers and now hundreds of thousands of people are using them wild swimming you would have been you would have been thought to be insane if you had been out wild swimming in the thames in in the 1990s I did. Most people would have assumed that you would instantly get gastroenteritis. Uh, but now, because we have so many people who are paddleboarding and kayaking and canoeing and while swimming, you know, it, we are outraged that it could be acceptable to put sewage into our rivers yeah. and into our seas. And 
And that's a good thing. It's a, it's a good thing when you have more and more people who are on the side of nature because, you know, we need to do big things to protect it. I think we're just so much more aware of nature and what we can perhaps gain from it. Even we do something called 30 Days Wild and it's proven just doing a little wild thing each day for 30 days really had a positive impact on mental health. And I think we're just sort of realising all of this going forward. I just wanted to ask, what wildlife encounter are you yet to experience, but it's on your bucket list? Um, I have, I have so many. In terms of the, the kind of the big iconic species, uh, the number one that I haven't seen that I want to is the narwhal. I'm trying to find them and we have not yet succeeded. Um, I, I've just done an entire series on whales and still not managed to see them. Um, so that would be my number one. But my my bucket list now is much more about getting my kids to see the kind of wildlife things that have, you know, set me alight over the years. I I want my kids to go to Galapagos. I want my kids to get their first African safari. I, I want my kids to, to, you know, go wandering in, in Snowdonia and the Cairngorms. I, I, want to be able to introduce them to all the things that have made my life so special and I get more out of it through their eyes than I ever would on my own. That must be a real parenting highlight actually, being able to have those kind of experiences with your own children. I just think there is something so special about seeing wildlife through the eyes of a child because they just have this incredible sense of wonder and fascination about them. And it really just takes you right back to when you were a child exploring and bug hunting or whatever it was. Yeah. Nostalgia is a, is a very powerful thing. And every time I, I go and climb a tree with my kids, every time I go pond dipping or, or wandering down the river with them, I am reaching back through the past and rubbing away the, the the kind of the murk on a window pane looking through to my younger self and I, I, I think that that's it's so strong so powerful particularly when you get to my age and particularly when you become a, a dad is is reconnecting to the past and doing it through these these youngsters that are suddenly everything to you so, yeah, I mean, that, that is definitely where all of my, my bucket list items lie. Your kids, they've got it a bit made, haven't they? When it comes to the parents' race at Sports Day, they'll have a wildlife action man and a literal Olympian. They'll be absolutely sorted. When it comes to the parents' races, I'm going to be setting Helen to do them and I am going to be sat in the background with a beer. <laughs> that would be so good. <laughs> And talking of children, because I know you're obviously very involved with children's programmes and inspiring them, I wanted to involve them somehow in this podcast. So I've asked Year One Butterfly Class of St Peter's Primary School, who've actually, they've been learning a lot about wildlife and creating habitats. I've asked them to come up with a couple of questions for you, if that's all right. So their first one is... What do you feel when you go on your adventures? Uh, uh, lots of things. So to begin with, 
it's all about preparation and planning and making sure that I've got all the right stuff and I've done all the right research. I know all the things that I need to know. And then when I'm on the expedition, a lot of it is thinking about the story that I need to tell um, and, you know, just getting swept away by the by the wonder of the things that I'm seeing. And then there's always the fabulous memories when it comes to a close. So so it's a whole realm of different feelings. I can imagine. They've also asked, how many types of animals have you seen? So I don't, I don't know, but I can tell you that um, if, if I was to go on a, a good night walk just after light rains in the tropical rainforest, I would expect to see minimum 30 different species. And I've been doing this job for 25 years and sometimes I might go on an expedition that lasts for eight weeks. We do a night walk like that every single night. I don't know how many it is. It's it's in the many tens of thousands. I did think that would be pretty impossible to answer, but I thought I've got to, got to get the questions in there. But another one, just a short one. What is your coolest wildlife fact? Um, there are some kinds of turtles that can breathe out their bottoms. <laughs> it's called... It's called cloacal respiration. That's a pretty cool one. I'm sure that the listeners will definitely like that. I'll be using that one. And final question. It is a serious one for you now, Steve. What was scarier? Coming face to face with a four and a half metre crocodile or wearing the sparkly spandex on Strictly Come Dancing? There is absolutely no contest. I have never been more out of my comfort zone, uh, never felt more exposed and more vulnerable than my, whatever it was, three or four months on Strictly. Much as I loved it, it was terrifying. It was brilliant, though. You're one of those people that... You could sit and talk to for hours the amount of stories that you must have but unfortunately that's all we've got time for thank you so much for coming on it's been a bit surreal to be able to chat to someone that i've grown up so inspired by we at the trust wish you all the best of luck we can't wait to look out for your future projects thank you very much it's been a pleasure and thank you too it's been lovely well aren't we lucky what a way to start this season's podcast. Stay tuned for next month's episode where we have another special guest to talk to. In the meantime, enjoy the spring wildlife, whether it's bird watching, fossil hunting or visiting your local Essex Wildlife Trust Centre.